Welcome to the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene podcast. Today we're joined with an incredible steering committee member, um, Yoella Jacobs. So thank you so much for joining us today. Um, would you mind quickly introducing yourself? Thank you, Kate. I'm so glad to be here. Um, yeah, my name is Yurila Jacobs. I am an assistant professor of German studies at the University of Arizona. Uh, and um, since I'm here on campus right now as we speak, I'd, I'd like to acknowledge that we sit on the territories of the Tona Odom and the Pasco Yaqui. Um, and and um, yeah, we are in the Sonoran Desert, so plants look very different here. That's maybe one thing I can say right away. Um, and you might wonder, you know, German studies, how how come how, how come that we're talking about plants? So maybe just to give you a little bit of a sense of what I do, just to start us off, is that um, I uh, work on uh, literature and culture, and so I'm really interested in the ways plants um, show up in these contexts. And uh, I'm convinced, <laughs> and that is what I argue in my work, that plants shape. Um, the human imagination uh, to a bigger extent than we usually acknowledge. You know, um, you might've heard about this concept of uh, so-called plant blindness or a lack of awareness for plants, of course. And and um, I think we underestimate them. And so um, one of the things I, I do in my work is, uh, or, or a concept I've developed is uh, phytopoetics. And um, what that means is, um, or what it describes are the moments um, when plants take on agency. So poetics goes back to the Greek uh, root of making. So when plants are co-contributing, co-making um, uh, in cultural production, that is what I'm particularly interested in. And I see that in literary texts. I see that in cultural and historical developments. And I'm happy to tell you, uh, to, to give you examples, to tell you more about that. So I look at that from the 18th century to the present in, in mostly uh, German language materials, but also, uh, you know, adjacent uh, literatures. And um, because often that stuff is not limited to just one area, you know, if it happens in Europe, it kind of happens across a lot of countries or there's a lot of influence, mutual um so that's what I that's what I do with plants. I also have other research areas. I come originally from animal studies, which might be interesting to know. So I'll just pop these out there. The I'm interested in the history of science, the history of sexuality. You will see how that relates to my examples in some ways. Um, I um, also uh, working in German Jewish studies, um, which uh, is not that easy to relate to plants, I guess. <laughs> um, so that's just another another area and environmental humanities writ large. So the just the, the questions of how we think about uh, environmentalism in, in, in my particular case as a cultural um, thing. And that is uh, also a lot of what I teach goes in this direction. So teaching uh, undergraduates uh, and graduate students and director of a, um, uh, an MA and a PhD program here. And um, that's in transcultural German studies. And uh, just today, you know, taught a course that's called From Animation to Zombies, and we're looking at definitions of life um, from a lot of different angles, very interdisciplinary, um, which all my work is. And there we're looking at life forms. We start with humans, animals, of course, plants. And then we go on and think about all the in-between, you know, viruses, which zombies are, right? That's why it's 
from A to Z, um, AI, aliens, you know, all that in-between stuff. It's really fun. We're at the fun part of the semester where we're deeply in speculation, um, but also reaching back to, to long traditions of um, thinking about what makes a human and what makes an animal, what makes a plant, what kind of rights do they have? Uh, what kind of places and agency do they have in the world? How do we, you know, think about classifying them? What does that mean for how we treat them? So um, those kinds of questions, I, I have uh, uh, like a, a lot of fun with my students exploring. That sounds so interesting. I wish I could sit in on your class. <laughs> so <Thank you. laughs> um, one thing that you mentioned a few times is agency. Um, I was wondering, because we have a ton of different types of listeners, some are in academia, some aren't. Um, what do you mean by agency? And how does it relate to phytopoetics? Yeah, thank you for that question. And I think that's a really important point, because that is one of these fuzzy words. What, what do we actually mean? So I'll give you an example, and I think it'll become clearer what I mean by phytopoetics. Um, and I'll, I'll, uh, and it's a bit of a, a, a history lesson too. So the way I first discovered this, this is how I'll, how, how I'll start. I was reading these texts, German short stories, basically from around 1900, and they were talking about sexy plants, <laughs> and I was really confused. It's like why, and and this is where you see the gender studies will will come in in a bit as well. Um, one of the texts was about masturbating plants. The other was a petition by a priest against um, uh, teaching botany in schools because botany is a danger to morality. And I was really puzzled by these texts. They were satirical, clearly, but I just I was like, what is the what is the context here? How, like, how did people come even even come up with this idea? And this is how. Um, how uh, I, I I found out, um, and the longer story of this is actually uh, plant reproduction wasn't really well understood until the 18th century. Um, before that, people thought that plants reproduced uh, um, sort of like the virginary, <laughs> asexually, right? Um, uh, and and you know, of course, plants can uh, uh, you know you can um, uh, uh, take a plant fragment and replant it. You know, we, we if you were a gardener, you know, you you know that there are so many ways of asexual reproduction um, where you just basically work with a clone of the plant or a, a part of the plant that grows into um, uh, a genetic clone, essentially. Um, and that is uh, how people thought for the longest time that that's they thought uh, how plants worked exclusively. And then in uh, in the course of the 18th century, they discovered sexual reproduction. Uh, they realized that pollen, you know, the role, what the role of pollen is. And you and it makes sense because the microscope, you know, you need the discovery of the microscope to understand what pollen does because it's all happening on such a small, like minute, small um, scale uh, that it's hard to see. And so once people found out that plants um, reproduce sexually, which is pollination, you know, the birds, uh, not the birds, the bees. And the um, See, it's the birds and the bees in English and German. It's the birds and the flowers. It makes a lot more sense. Um, so that euphemism about, about sex is actually about pollination. And so um, once people discovered that in the, in the 18th century, um, that, that plants are reproducing um, sexually and that actually plants are pretty promiscuous if you think about it. 
any bee, any old bee can come by, right? And pollinate. And really that is what plants want. That's why the flowers are fragrant, beautiful, you know, with strong colors. It's an evolutionary mechanism to, to attract uh, pollinators and um and, uh, you know, it's not just insects, of course, wind, water, humans, everyone's involved in pollination. So pretty promiscuous um, beings. That was a shocker to 18th century um, uh, society. Uh, and um, at the time, there were actually surprisingly many women engaged in botany. It's one of the sciences that had um, uh, sort of more women than other other sciences uh, allowed. And immediately it became sort of the thing that uh, that your wife shouldn't, couldn't do anymore. <laughs> couldn't draw flowers anymore. Couldn't, couldn't press flowers, couldn't garden, couldn't, um, you know, so all of a sudden all these floral pursuits became, um, uh, uh, unreputable and disreputable. And, um, uh, it, there were, and then what emerged was sort of uh, literary satire. So poems like the, uh, and, and stuff like the loves of plants by Rasmus Darwin describing sort of, um, you know, plants as sexual. And this, you know, Linnaeus is the one who had popularized this with the sexual system. It's a, it's a classification system of, of plants by their reproductive kinds. And he showed that there were 24. Now, if you take that in addition, it's not just that they're sexual beings. They have 24 different ways of reproducing. They have multiple um, stamina and pistols, you know, like, so multiple, that's the equivalent. So they said of penis and vagina and so forth, you know, so, um, so, moral outreach, of course, in the 18th century. And the literature around it um, is really reflecting that uh, in, a, in a sort of satirical and funny way, but also with, with actual moral um, uh, uh, concern. I mean, if you look at even the Mary Wollstonecraft's Declaration of the Rights of Women, even the beginning is a plant metaphor, you know? And so women equated with plants as these asexual beings until you discovered, oh, all promiscuous. And so when I so now this is a long story. <laughs> Apologies, I just uh, find it so exciting. And so one of the arguments uh, I make about this is um, what we're starting to see here is that uh, knowledge about plants all of a sudden shapes the way we think, not just about plants and their reproduction, but also about human gender and sexuality. And it impacts human uh, production, human culture. If women are all of a sudden excluded from botany, that is a major impact that plants, and just the way they are, right, have on human culture. Um, so I'm flipping a little bit this idea of, oh, we're discovering plans, you know, this mode of discovery, which is always so problematic. <laughs> if we think about how it's used um, to say, well, plans were like that all along. We just didn't know, right? Um, so once, um, and so this is the impact on the imagination sort of that I that I mean, and the, and the production of texts of, you know, um, all these cultural artifacts that that you know uh, spring forth from this from from this source, and this happens again around 1900 in those texts that I began with, the ones that I first found. And um, what I realized is that these things align with discoveries about human sexuality. And the late 19th century was a time period when um, uh, sexology as a discipline was founded and when ideas like like the term homosexuality is is was coined in that time Foucault calls it the the birth of the homosexual um and so that those stories about masturbating plants and also all of those they are about um same-sex desire uh, they feature men mostly and um 
and there's they're satirical about that and and here the target so is no longer women but the ones who are supposed to be protected from all these promiscuous plants who do all sorts of amoral stuff now are school children and here's the kicker this doesn't just happen in literature the texts actually correspond and when i found that out i just couldn't believe it but there was a school censorship and this is german text and, and i'm talking now about specifically the german context there were there was a um about 20 years of school censorship on um on biology classes so that that petition that is sort of arguing for against botany you know is a satire of that very censorship that's happening and at the time you know but I see you and the view, the listeners can't see this, but I see you nodding and sort of saying, whoa, and, um, and I will, uh, but here's how we can translate this into our context. Think about the debates we're having about um, teaching evolution in schools in the US. That is kind of like that same debate they had. They were talking about Darwin's discoveries and with it about these reproductive ideas and, and, and a couple other concepts. And they were saying, biology is just corrupting the youth. It's, it's, it's too dangerous to learn, right? We're learning the wrong things, people. And so once you put it in that context, I think it becomes much more comprehensible that this was, you know, that, that these are patterns that repeat in our own time and so I would say, if we go from the 18th century, where women get excluded from this knowledge, then we go to around 1900 when it targets, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, gay men and in the stories, and then school children are, are supposed to be protected from that. I do think we see that happening um, throughout the 20th century and 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 to today, also with you know all sorts of. Um, uh, uh, sexual orientations with with queer people and so forth. And, you know, the sad thing is in these stories, and I mean, it's satire, but the stories sort of say, well, we should eradicate all plants, right? That is the solution is, is what those priests are saying that, of course, we know if we did that, well, no more atmosphere to breathe. We would really screw ourselves, if I may say that. Um, but of course, the back drop of this is the persecution of of people with other sexual orientations and identities right at the time because um that that is sort of the the, the real backdrop of that persecution of plants and maybe just to make one last small point you see that even in the metaphors that meta and slurs that are used so um a colleague of mine has written a, a master's thesis called fucking pansies and it is about the correlation between, you know, um, uh, gay men and, and you know, um, sort of floral uh, metaphors, right? And so as soon as you start looking, you see that in the language, right? You see, you see, of course, these connections across all of it. You also see it in terms like defloration and so forth, right? So that, the you know, depending on which context you look at here, but the history of gender and sexuality are really bound up with with plants is what I what I argue and what my work shows. And and um but I want to give that agency back to the plants because I do think that it's all about them, that they are the reasons why um why these uh, cultural shifts are happening and or they or they make it possible to talk about them differently and they bring it out, they bring out the satire in different ways. So then you write a satirical story about plans, but you're talking about a very serious context for, you know, for people at the time. So um, 
saying something through the flower is a German expression, uh, meaning to use a euphemism. And I think that's exactly what these texts do. That is so fascinating. Thank you so much for sharing um, that part of your work and your overarching argument. It really does, as you're explaining all of this, all of these different forces and issues that were happening in a more historical time period, I can't help but think, like you have mentioned, how much it's still happening, like now with book censorship in the U at least in the US context where I'm more familiar with it, a push, several different political pushes around like sexual and gender identities, uh, book censorship, um, not only in public spaces, but also in schools. Um, I remember in my high school, we were allowed to read the chapter on evolution, but we couldn't ask any questions. Really? I went to a fairly religious, um, but not Catholic, a Protestant uh, private high school. And mm -hmm. that was their way of dealing with it back in the early aughts. Um, <laughs> I don't know how much that has changed or not, but these are definitely highly contemporary issues for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think on, on some level, it's really shocking how much a censorship of knowledge uh, is still around or is is rearing its head, um, especially because, you know, I think with with the internet, people sort of thought that that time was over, that you couldn't censor knowledge anymore. And so it's really interesting the way, of course, the internet has also, um, you know, uh, led to a lot of misinformation and that now it just functions differently. But I do, you know, in the end, we come back to this idea that knowledge is, is, is power. And so it's also threatening to those in power. And, um, and I find it fascinating. And, and honestly, what you're describing, I mean, it's funny, I read those texts that are from like, 1890s, and they call it what they observe with the plants, a crime against nature. And that's a legal term, actually, that's still in existence. And the person um, in the context of come ups comes uh, in which it comes up, it's like a chief justice. And so I so I googled crime against nature, chief justice, what pops up? <laughs> the chief justice of Alabama, Roy Moore saying crime against nature about same-sex uh, relationships in the early 2000s. So um, 100 years later and nothing seemingly has changed. And yet I would say a lot has changed regardless, but but it is really fascinating to see those parallels and to see that that language about naturalness too is just very, very persistent. And it can be empowering because plants are so diverse. And I think that can empower human diversity, but at the same time, um, I mean, you, You've seen the headlines about gay penguins and that kind of stuff too, right? In the end, we I think we have to be careful that not every human wants to be compared to a penguin or a plant, right? And this is some of the some of the difficulty or, or some of the difficult negotiations I think we have to make with this idea of uh, um, or engage in with this idea of naturalness, yeah. Definitely. That's so fascinating. Um, do you have any kind of general 
texts that perhaps have or haven't been translated into English. I'm sure our listeners come from a variety of linguistic backgrounds. Um, so do you have any particularly interesting ones that you've happened across in your research um, that you would encourage folks to look at or read if they're looking for something um, that covers these types of fascinating political um, plant imageries? Yeah. Um, uh, so uh, I think the the loves of plants by Erasmus Darwin is a is a good one. It's a long form poem, but but th this is if you want to read 18th century, you know, uh, poetry. Um, I mean, one thing that and uh, in, in this is perhaps it's always so tricky, but I can kind of recommend my own work if you want to just get a glimpse of these quotes because some of the German texts actually haven't been. Uh, translated, and the reason is that they were censored immediately um, because there were so much, uh, so much talk about sexuality in them, and um, there is a real pattern also of institutionalizing people, um, declaring them mad, and uh, that also isn't very good for <laughs> for reprints of your of, of your publications, apparently. So, um, so um, if if you're interested in this, um, uh, the most recent article I've published it has come out in the journal Environmental Humanities, and it's open access, so you can find it online. And so if you look for my name, and some good keywords are incestuous and perverse, <laughs> but also phytopoetics, of course, history of sexuality, that title will pop up, and I'm sure we can we can add. Um, perhaps a link to, to the podcast uh, information with that. But that is where you would find a lot of the sources um, from the Wollstonecraft to those German texts and, uh, and excerpts from those in my own translation. Um, yeah, okay. It feels a little weird to advertise your own work, but I think this is kind of the place where you'll find it all combined if you, if you if you're looking for more. And who knows if a colleague who wants to cite something is is listening, that is also where you could find that. I think it's important to, I know that it, it can, especially in academia, feel uncomfortable, like being too, putting your work out there um, as a source. But it is also, I think, like one of the public goods that we do. Like we spend all this time finding this really cool stuff. <laughs> and so it's good to, yeah. you know, make sure that people have access to it, especially if like in your case, in the case of your research, many of the texts aren't widely available and yeah. so it sounds like a good a great resource and we'll definitely provide a link in the show notes for sure Thank you <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite plant and if so what is it yeah, I love this question. Um, I was asked this question before um, once. Uh, there's a collection called The Minds of Plants, and we were asked to write about our favorite plant, and everybody picked all my favorite plants. <laughs> and um, I'll tell you what they are in a second, but what I then did was I looked at the list and I realized some of the most iconic plants weren't missing, were missing, in this case, the rose. Nobody had picked the rose. Nobody wanted the rose, which was really surprising to me. So then I wrote a piece about the rose in, the, in, in that collection. And it really made me reflect on um, where it shows up in my life in ways that I appreciated. But they also had us record little videos for the website. And I was sort of found myself in my garden here in the desert. 
with my roses, which burn up as soon as it gets as hot as it's starting to get now. Um, and I was thinking about them as an invasive species that actually doesn't quite belong here. Um, but I was also thinking about it, you know, I, I am not from Arizona, I am from Germany. And so um, in some ways, I was thinking about these journeys we make in the, in the, in the way that plants migrate. And so you can trace human history through it and a lot of violent history, but not everything maybe has to be that negative. So I was thinking about being a, a transplant in, in, in a way, you know. Um, and so some of the plants that I really love, and I miss them because I don't get to see them here. Um, um, I love lilac, um, just the smell of it. And so I, but I always miss the season and it's just a, you know, it's a short, like two weeks or something that they bloom and I, um, and I would have to go somewhere else to see them. Right. And, and it's, it's something that you don't think about until you miss it. And, um, and uh, uh, so those and like the forget-me-nots in my mother's garden and the roses that she brought from her mother's garden, you know, that that those were some of the uh, plant um, connections that I thought about. Um, you know, I find them beautiful and they smell good and all that, of course. But um, I also started thinking about the relationships we have with and through plants and um and that's really because of that rose piece, because I started to think about that generational passing on of roses. And, you know, you can't bring uh, live plants um, with you. Uh, uh, um, so so that is why I can't have them. And it's an interesting thing to think about. And I had to think about, you know, other stories of migration. Uh, the book I'm reading right now is uh, The Island of Missing Trees. Um, and it's uh, about the story of a um, of a fig tree brought from Cyprus to London and how it's sort of that tree is being cared for and the tree also speaks part of the novel. Um, so it's a, a, a fun one. Um, so here's a reader reading recommendation then that's in English. And, um, and the way this fig tree represents home to this a person who, you know, moved and over decades cares for this fig tree as, as a reminder of, of, um, their home island Cyprus and so that's something I could relate to even though of course um, you know I say this from a place of privilege I'm you know I'm not a refugee I'm you know I can travel back now that that COVID restrictions have been dropped you know um, and so I do want to acknowledge that but I but I really find myself looking at plants differently in the places I live because the uh, landscape is so vastly different. Definitely. Um, it is interesting how close certain plants can be to our memories and our lived experiences, but also very far apart, very non-accessible, I guess. Um, yeah. Just because you want to have them near you, you can't always, for sure. You mentioned your mother and your grandmother. Um, what is your family history with plants? Do you remember growing up around plants? Um, yeah. Um, that's a great question. Um, so, uh, so, and this is an interesting, you know, if you ask a German about the family history, you will always come upon Nazis. And so I'll just put that out there. That is, that is the thing, um, that, that sort of, um, uh, you know, my, so my grandmother, um, uh, had a garden, but it was a subsistence garden. Um, 
you know, my grandfather uh, came from a farm and um, they, you know, married in 44. In the post-war years, it was about, um, you know, uh, growing vegetables, having um, uh, rabbits that, you know, they would slaughter and eat and, and these kinds of things. Um, but my grandmother also had those roses. Uh, so I think there was always um, a little bit of room for that as well. And um, and I grew up actually in... in um, an apartment building in a, in a pretty um, uh, poor neighborhood, you know, the positive spin is to call it international, <laughs> um, uh, but sort of a, a part of town where, um, uh, you know, that, that um, where there was, you know, the socioeconomic, um, th there was, a I mean, a lot of diversity, a lot of people from different countries. The one thing that everybody had in common was they had no money. And, um, and there were no gardens, but there was a forest nearby. And as a kid, I played in that a lot. Um, you know, German children uh, or the approach to German uh, childhood is kind of a lot of independence, a lot of free roaming. Um, still a lot more than than in the, in the U.S. in comparison, even as times are changing. And so I was just spending a lot of time in that forest, which um, I really loved. And then... Um, when I was almost ready to move out, my parents uh, were able to move to a place with a garden and inherited a really beautifully um, set up garden where something is blooming at any time of the year, which is which is just masterful and art, art well, masterful is not a great word, artful. Um, uh, and um, uh, and uh, that is what I come back to when I visit home and I try to go in the spring because it's just stunning. And um, yeah, that's, that's, I guess that, that story. And thank you for asking me about that question, because I don't think I have thought about it in those ways before. Yeah. It's something that I think about frequently, at least in this point of my life, while I'm like trying to figure out what comes next, figuring out what I'm doing now, how it connects to the past and to hopefully find some, some not roots maybe, but some type of continuity um with the communities yeah now that I'm thinking more about it you know what I think it's such a you know I said oh if you ask a German about history but honestly that's maybe something that would be good for all of us to think through right what our histories are with the land because I mean we're here in, in, in settled uh, territory and it, you know, of course, we could tell stories of gardens and just talk about the roses and and not about what's sort of under the soil in a way, if you will, right? But I do think, um, and this is something, you know, people sometimes think, oh, if you talk about flowers, it's going to be not political, or it's not, you know, it's it's all just going to be um, uh, pretty, but I, I think very much not. And I and so I think this is a productive exercise. Also, if we think, you know, let's just pick a random plant, cotton, <laughs> right? And, and, and think about the history sort of that, that go with that. So I think, this is also if people ask me why I engage with plants, right? Uh, uh, as a German studies professor or in general, I think, you know, through through plants, all these historical and cultural moments are coming out. We can trace them. Um, uh, you know, I curated an exhibit here on campus a couple of years back where where we did that through painting. So I, I think, you know, no matter the discipline, no matter the um, the medium or the format, um, it's just a matter of us, you know, thinking it through that it's not just pretty flowers, right? That there's so much in connection to that. Um, and, 
maybe this is a good moment if, if that's okay for me to say. So um, one of the things I, when I started working with plants, there wasn't much plant studies out there. This is sort of what the discipline from an academic angle is sometimes called a plant humanities. And um, there were animal studies, but not the same engagement with plants. There were a few people publishing stuff, Michael Martyr, you know, one of the uh, early um, uh, pioneers. And um, so my desire was to bring together community. So this is how this connects back since you said that, right? Thinking about the, to connecting it to our community. So and so in 2015, uh, at a conference, um, uh, the idea arose to, 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 to create a network. And so in, in 2016, I started the Literary Cultural Plant Studies Network, just as a place for people to connect about these questions and to pull together you know, people through a listserv, through people profiles, but also texts through a bibliography to show that there actually is a body of work and that there's like many historians, many art historians, many, you know, people in various fields have thought about plants. Of, of course they have. And let alone every, all, all our friends and colleagues in, in, you know, the natural sciences, of course. And so one of the goals for me was to make those discourses visible, to make plant agency, if, if you will, visible again through that and to bring people together um, to talk about plants. And I know that this is, of course, also what's behind the Networking with Plants in the Anthropocene um, initiative. Yes, it it is interesting. In my own experience coming from philosophy, I think plants usually get bunched together with all other living things. It's kind of like humans, other animals, and then everything else, at yeah. least, you know, from a like looking at why things have intrinsic or inherent moral value, for example. And so it is really cool, I think, that there's this wellspring of people interested in really pursuing plants as something worthy of looking yeah. at in and of themselves. And I think especially because Western philosophy needs it. Um, you know, indigenous knowledges, of course, have have been way ahead of us in that in that regard. But uh, I think especially um, Western philosophy, literature, culture needs that focus. Um, you know, in literature for the longest time, it's just the plant is the symbol. So the rose is, says something about the human. And, and sort of for me, the goal is but what why does it matter that it's a rose and what kind of rose is it? And, and, and what does it say about the rose? And so that's sort of where, where that thinking, where that thinking goes. Um, yeah. So if anyone is interested in joining that, who's listening, uh, look for plants.arizona.edu. And I'm just so proud that a person in the humanities owns the domain plants.arizona.edu on our campus. Uh, it is, it is one of my favorite, um, little facts. <laughs> Definitely. We will make sure to provide a link in the show notes to that as well. Um, it's a great network or er, network and listserv. I think actually I contacted you first about options when I was in the early days of my dissertation. And that's how I got connected um, with the networking with plants and even the consortium of environmental philosophers. And so I'm greatly indebted <laughs> to your work on that front. That's so great to hear. Yeah, I, I just really, it, it's just really a tool for people to, to find stuff and find each other um, so that not everybody has to reinvent the wheel. I do think, you know, in the humanities, we often do that solitary research, uh, a lot less collaborative research um, than in the natural sciences. And I, I do think we can definitely learn from our colleagues in that regard and uh, collaborate more. 
what can plants teach humans and how can we as humans kind of access some of that information or insight? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that um, plants can show us our limits because plants are so radically different. You said earlier, right? Humans, other animals. Yeah, we and if we say on our other animals, we think of you know uh, monkeys and dogs. You know, we we don't we don't actually necessarily think uh, about the animals that are maybe looking and acting less like us or. A, you know, maybe not flies or something. <laughs> so, um, so I think that's what's so, uh, uh, what plants can teach us really is that they're so different. You know, they don't have that same concept of individuality. You can take a piece, multiple pieces. The plant is still the plant. Are the pieces now also, you know, like even just with asexual reproduction, what do you, like you get a lot of really big conceptual questions. But I think for me that raises that reminds us just that we just think we have those clear boundaries as humans, but just think about what all goes in and out of the body. Like as you breathe, as you eat, you know, we're so porous, we're full of viruses. Uh, so many, you know, gut bacteria keep us alive, you know, like the sense of self, the sense of other, the sense of individuality or boundedness. I think there's so much we can learn there. The way information flows, that kind of network ability um, that we're learning about with plants. Um, the time, like plant time is so radically different from human time to the extent that we can barely perceive movements because we're just way too rushed. Um, you know, uh, if you think about the the short time of a flower and the long time of a of a tree, like let's say a redwood, right? I mean, there's such a vast scope. There's so much diversity. And then we're outnumbered by plants, you know, over 80% of the biomass is, is plants and and they can do so many things. I mean, what is not to learn, right? To me, it's sort of, um, it is, a, once you start paying attention to plants, it is just astounding that you haven't done it before. I think that is sort of the moment that the, the experience and we underestimate them gravely, right? We, we just overlook them. We, uh, you know, and so that's why, you know, one of the, one of the, the genres I like is sci-fi that makes plants come to life because then all of a sudden the thing that was just the backdrop that was just, you know, on the windowsill, all of a sudden becomes a threat or a predator often in these scenarios. And it just awakens us to the fact that we're, you know, really um, gotten very comfortable in an environment we know very little about <laughs> with lots of living beings around us. Um, and so I think that kind of change of perspective is what, what my engagement with plants gives to me or, or has brought me. And that lets me see environmental questions differently. Um, you know, the that kind of anthropocentric focus that puts the human at the top of the uh of, of all classification systems and hierarchies, you know. Um, it it just isn't the same anymore when you think about um other life forms as life forms, right? That doesn't mean they want the same or, or necessarily need the same rights, right? I think. For instance, animal rights and plant rights look very different because they're very different needs, very different, uh, you know, strategies for thriving and 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 so forth. But it makes me just think about the world differently. And the biggest thing I see is our dependence on plants. And once you arrive at that realization, like if you look around you, wherever you are right now, if you're listening, 
you see plant matter, whether you're inside or outside. There's not a single plant in my office actually um, right now, um, but there's plant matter, so much plant matter around me. And so um, I think that perspective change to me is the biggest thing that a focus on plants can can get us. And that's beneficial for everyone and everything, I think. Um, and it's humbling in a very good way. And um, it just goes to show that we should learn more about plants because, you know, the key to so much in the world might just be in plants. One thing that the networking with plants in the Anthropocene group is really interested in um, is respect for plants and kind of sussing out, well, what is respect for plants? What does it look like? And so for you, what what are some of the ways you think about having or showing um, respect for plants? How is it embodied? What does it look like? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, in in terms of ethics, you know, I've often gotten the question, especially in those overlaps between animal and plant studies, I often gotten the question, so, so we can't eat anything? <laughs> and I'm saying, no, no, that's not the point at all. Most plants have evolved because they want to be eaten, like they produce fruit. Um, the problem is, uh, and I'd say this only half jokingly, <laughs> is where we go to the bathroom, right? We're not spreading seeds the way we're supposed to anymore. Um, but I think, uh, you know, we really like that kind of ethical thinking about plants really requires uh, a step away from animal ethics because that um, that is so close to human ethics. And to think about what a plant needs for thriving. And um, so I think in, in a lot of ways, um, if, if we collect those kinds of ideas, I think that's where respect starts is to make sure to afford our plants that kind of um, uh, respect. And so, um, you know, just a couple of weeks uh, or yeah, as, as you've probably seen this too, a new study came out showing that plants are actually making noises of distress, screaming as the headlines say. Um, and um, we just can't hear them. That's the frequency is just not something that people have picked up on before. And, you know, and this is not, this is not a punchy, I mean, it is also a punchy headline, but it is really, you know, it's, it's based on the study. Of course, we have to learn more, but I think, you know, if we're talking about respect, it, I don't think it is hard to understand, even for someone who doesn't know that much about plants, that there's some basic needs that plants have that, that need to be fulfilled. And that, for instance, if we go to the level of saying, I own plants, you know, I have plants in my house, that we are have an obligation to learn um, uh, uh, what helps them thrive, just as if we owned, quote unquote, animals, if you lived with, I, I much prefer living with as a concept, um, you know, thinking about Donna Haraway's companion species, I think that extends to plants for me. And so, you know, that all those jokes about not having a green thumb and, and all the plants dying, so it, you know, that, that's, for instance, something, if you're not good at keeping them alive, maybe, maybe, you know, don't, maybe that's not for you then, right? But we, we it's sort of so acceptable in society. So those are kind of the moments where I think, or the other picture I always have in my mind is, you know, you see a kid taking a branch, ripping up all the leaves, ripping all the leaves off that branch, just walking by for, for no reason. That to me, I think they're so normalized. Um, and a friend of mine um, 
you know, uh, has young children and um, I've, I've, I loved being present in a conversation they had about picking flowers where my friend said, you know, and, and it wasn't just, you shouldn't pick the flowers of someone else's garden, or you shouldn't, um, you know, pick all the flowers because we want things to look pretty, but there was a component of here's what happens when you pick a flower, you know, and it, it, it can live longer if you don't pick it and you still can look at it and it's going to be beautiful and you can still enjoy it. But if you pick it, you know, here's what starts happening. And of course, on the level for, you know, a small child, explain to a small child and not to make it feel bad, but to, to teach about um, respect for living beings around us. And I think this is something that uh, we can do for plants. It's, you know, we have a choice whether we squash a spider or not in our house, whether we kill a fly or, or not, you know, um, there, there are alternatives in those moments. And I think those small actions to me, those will not change. This will not solve the climate crisis or things like that. But if we're talking about respect, I think that is where it starts for me um, with those small things that where we have a choice and just because we're stronger <laughs> or more mobile or, you know, something like that um, doesn't mean that we can just, you know, do whatever we want. And, and in fact, I think it means we have a responsibility for those who are less strong and for those who can't run away. Another area of interest for the network is education. And so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about your identity. Do you consider yourself a teacher, a student, or both? And what role you think education should play when we're thinking about our relationships with plants? Thank you. Um, I, I love talking about teaching and learning. I do think anyone who stops learning can no longer be a teacher. Um, so I wouldn't even make it about identity of student or teacher, but just that I think learning is a continuous process. And if you think you know everything, well, then you have a serious problem. Um, that's sort of my, my take on that. Um, and I say this because in my everyday life, I, I teach a lot, but I also learn a lot and, and, um, but it, you know, what this looks like sort of in my professional, um, life is that, you know, I, I, as I mentioned in the beginning, I teach on, on various levels. And of course, I don't always get to teach about plants. I, I mean, I teach all sorts of things. That's where we come back. I'm in the German studies department, right? We, we will talk about German literature or we, you know, and language and, and, and uh, culture and all sorts of, uh, sorts of things, you know, to those of you who are um, not familiar sort of with, or who, who, who maybe are, surprised that you know that I'm not just talking about language I think there's often this misconception that you know language departments they just supply the language sort of as a um, as a service but we're kind of like English departments we just do it in in, in two languages with that with a with a different uh, uh, cultural context or multiple involved it, I mean just as a you know to picture sort of what that looks like for those who maybe um are in different corners of campus or not on a campus at all um and so in my teaching um I cover a lot of ground, but I'm really happy when I can talk about these questions, like in the course I mentioned in the beginning. 
Um, and I'm also happy to say that my college has the first emphasis in plant studies as a, a BA program. Um, so undergraduates here can um, major in public and applied humanities with an emphasis in plant studies. And I do think those interdisciplinary programs are um, really in a lot of ways I don't wanna say the future, that's so cheesy and corny. Who knows what the future is? I don't know what the future is, but I do think the kind of um, thinking that, you know, standing with one foot in one discipline and with one foot in the other or something like that, or in one area and another, the kind of transfer um, skills you have to develop uh, when you do that, I think those are really, really beneficial for the kinds of um, challenges we're facing as a, as a, you know, as a planet, uh, as a collective of, of, of humans, animals, plants, and, and many more, um, uh, uh, creatures, things, I don't know, <laughs> critters. Um, so I think, um, that's sort of what I, uh, what I would say is I'm particularly interested in bringing together ideas that have for some reason been, separated historically or where expertise sort of focuses on uh, uh, sort of forces us to drill drill down and I and um and I, I'd love bringing some of these ideas back together to see um sort of how does that help us so for instance in a course on environmental um culture that I teach we're looking at how environmental acts are culturally determined and historically determined in order to understand why we do what we do as humans. And um, and in order to see whether someone else has tried this out in another cultural context, whether it worked or not, you know, what, what are the things that are working, what aren't, how can you um, shape uh, uh, societal awareness for things that need to be done? And how can you maybe also, you know, shoot yourself in the foot a little bit when there are, you know, sometimes there are cultural developments that sort of take on a life of of their own. And um, and I think the the good thing or the productive thing in that is that we both think about a really important topic, you know, environmentalism, and and that is that is just urgent, so incredibly urgent. And at the same time, we're doing it with a with a with a transcultural lens, and we, we're keeping in mind that not everybody's the same. And I think this is really important in these contexts, also to remember again the discrepancies that what what affects certain populations disproportionately, right? Who can afford? to have to have these kinds of environmental behaviors right um uh, how are systems and structures um setting that up or not and so um uh I, i'm getting further and further away from your question but that is sort of where some of my some of my uh passions lie that i think that 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 teaching has to be related to contexts that matter. And so even when I say plant studies, someone would say, well, oh, you talk about roses, you know, <laughs> what kind of real world matter, you know, how does it matter in the real world? Well, but I do think those discourses about gender and sexuality absolutely matter in the real world, um, quote unquote, real world. I mean, we're, all of this is real world, but you know, I think it's about relevance um, is, is what I'm trying to <laughs> say here with all these examples. Um, and um, that we kind of need um, this kind of critical thinking, this kind of bringing together of, of disparate ideas and so forth to face these challenges that are just so multifaceted and complicated. I totally agree. What are some projects that you're working on now or that you will be working on soon for people to kind of be looking for? 
Yeah, um, there is some stuff that's forthcoming that I think will be interesting. So <clears throat> with Punctum Books, uh, uh, I'm uh, we're sort of in the final phase of bringing out a project that's called Microbium, and it's about micromatter, all sorts of small things that have a huge impact. Um, this is with my um, co-editor, Agnes Malinowska. And uh, so think about pollen and bacteria, coral, viruses, fungi, um, uh, animalcules. So we have... A, you know, we're taking that literally the micro part. So it's short entries. Um, I think it'll be really fun to read whether you're in academia or outside of it. It's sort of little cultural and scientific histories of these forms of micromatter and the way that they, um, you know, have shown up on human radars, which is really only with the discovery of the microscope, right? We, um, so we're calling it sort of microscopic readings that the, our authors are doing there. And they're really telling sort of the cultural history of, of these of the micromatter. And you know, we conceived of this long before COVID. And the author who had to who was writing our virus entry really had a very tough job because all of a sudden <laughs> COVID happened and it changed everything, of course. And the relevance of these micro um particles uh became uh of course a, a whole different one with COVID discourses. So we're really happy that this is coming out soon with punctum and I think it's a really fun it's going to be a really fun read um uh, it's it's on their website already so we'll we'll add the link like you mentioned Kate and the other project for those of you who are doing plant studies maybe a little pitch um this has also been making for in the making for a long time with a collaborator in Vienna Isabel Kanz um it's uh it's a cultural studies handbook about plants um with 40 contributors we're in the final in the final round now the one caveat is it's going to come out in German, but we are looking at ways to um, transferring or translating it into English soon. I think we do need a companion to plant studies in a way. Um, and so I'm very excited uh, to, you know, make a first step with a German language one and then see where that goes. Um, so I hope that that can become a place where people look for the kinds of references they need. and. Um, yeah, so I'm really excited for these projects to come out. Maybe a, a, a last one, if I may, um, in the Critical Plant Studies series at Brill with Michael Martyr, um, we're going to have a, bo a book coming out, a collection that's called Plant Poetics, um, with contributors from the first uh, conference that the Literary and Cultural Plant Studies Network put on. That was back in 2019. COVID delayed us quite a bit. Um, I'll officially take the blame on myself here. My co-editors, my co uh, Isabel Klantz and Sylvia Nitzke, <laughs> they have worked really hard and it's now sitting on my desk for the final steps and um, and we're excited for that to come out too. So it feels like a lot of projects are coming to fruition after COVID slowed down a lot of stuff. Um, I also have a, my monograph coming out, but there's only a chapter about plants. So that's more for the German studies folks. Uh, <laughs> so I'll leave that out, but um, this is sort of the stuff on the horizon. Awesome. That sounds so wonderful. I can't wait to read all of those great texts. Um, well, thank you so much, Joella, for joining us. It's been such a pleasure learning more about your work and your insights into plant studies. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with 
with me. Thanks so much, Kate. You're a wonderful podcast host, uh, if I may say that here. Um, and it, it was just a lovely conversation. And um, maybe just a note, if people are interested in connecting, um, they're very welcome to reach out. If you look for the Plan Studies Network, you'll find my email address easily. So um, if people want to connect about stuff, I'm, like I said, always interested in collaborating. And if you're interested in the networking with plants in the Anthropocene, please feel free to visit our website, networkingwithplants.org, or email us at networkingwithplants at gmail.com. Thank you again for joining us this week for this great conversation. I'm so excited. <laughs> Thank you so much, Yuela, and we'll see you next time with another great interview um, in chat with a great plant person. Take good care. The music piece is kindly offered to us by artist Mylise. Mylise is a sonic artist, immersive ecology designer, and clean energy ambassador. Merging art and technology, she creates music experiences that express the voices of plants and the other inhabitants of the earth.